This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long, 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 suffering host, Dante Stack. And today we are on question 65, which, by the way, is about the concept of God's silence. And you may remember over a year ago, September of 2015, I did the as of yet only part A and B version of an episode where part A I took one angle and part B I took a different angle of this show where I considered the idea of suffering, specifically in context of a novel I read called Silence about Portuguese missionaries going to 15th century feudal Japan. Well, ladies and gentlemen, finally, after long last, a trailer for the movie called Silence, directed by Martin Scorsese, has been released. Uh, if you want to view that trailer, you can go to the show notes page for this episode on DanteStack.com, click on the 365 Honest Questions tab and show notes, and I'll link to it from there. Uh, but I'm super excited to see that, and kind of coincidentally, I'm taking another angle on God's silence today. Uh, listener beware, there's some major spoilers for the book and movie called A Clockwork Orange, and some violent imagery that we kind of discuss along the way. But without further ado, let's get into it. Why does God go silent? This question, like so many of our other questions, is really about the same old, same old. It's really about why do bad things happen to me or why do bad things happen in the world, right? Why is God silent? Because I need him. Why is God silent? Because all this crud is happening and I'm crying out to him. Where is he? There's the common, now historical phrase, the dark night of the soul. And that tends to refer to people who are going through this period of silence from God when they're crying out to God and they don't hear him. So, why is that necessary? I'm going to ask a few corollary questions to that in today's episode and going to go mainly down one specific rabbit hole. And you might think this rabbit hole frivolous. You might think, hey, Dante, you're just repeating yourself. If so, I'm sorry. You can skip this episode, go to some other one, re-listen to episode 24 if you want. But I find it kind of interesting, the particular rabbit trail we're about to go on. So, so for that matter, I do apologize if you find it redundant. But I felt like when I stumbled upon this track of thought, I felt like it was at least there was something unique in it to me. So hopefully there's something unique in it to you. The text we're looking at is Psalm 77, and I'm going to read it in two parts. So the whole podcast is kind of part A, part B. At first, we'll read the first nine verses of Psalm 77, talk through a specific idea from there, and then vet the latter half of the chapter, verses 10 through 20. But before we get down that trail, I want to ask you a different question that could also be considered, you know, the question of the day, the question of the week, whatever. And that is, if God was something other than spirit, what would you want him to be? I'll let you dwell on that for a while, and we'll get back to that at the latter part of this episode. But I want to give you my answer right off the bat, and that is, I wish God were like Old Faithful. You know, the guys are in Yellowstone National Park. Old Faithful, according to the Wikipedia page I just quickly looked up, spouts a whole bunch of water into the air from the ground, a giant geyser, a faithful geyser, every 44 to 125 minutes every single day. It is faithful to do its job. It is essentially going off, not quite like clockwork, but within a specific time frame that is very dependable. Faithful. 
a big part of me wishes God showed up in that way, that we could count on him showing up at a specific date and time. doesn't have to be every day, but say, if we knew every 40 years that God shows up in physical form in his temple in Jerusalem, in Zion, let's say, that would be a real faith-inducing thing, wouldn't it be? Like Santa Claus, who children believe faithfully comes every Christmas Eve. It would be super cool if God did something like that. But no, God is not a tame lion. He doesn't schedule his appearances on our calendar. But anyway, keep that question in mind and the thought of Old Faithful as we read this text. My note in my ESV Bible for this chapter says, To the choir master, according to Jedathun, a psalm of Asaph. Here we go. First nine verses. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then... My spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You can feel Asaph's pain dripping off of the page and anguish because it's hoping when there doesn't seem to be any reason any longer to hope. That is a special type of torment. It's one thing to give into pain, to give into anguish, to let that seep through your being, to fall down in a pile of mud and just give up on something. It's another thing to have those same pains inflicted upon you, whatever they may be, but strive to continue to have faith, strive to continue to have hope. It's as if you're sentenced to prison, but you never know what day you're going to be let out of. The judge doesn't say, you're sentenced to five years in jail. He just says, you're going to jail. And you never know when your last day of jail is going to be. That seems to be the type of pain that Asaph is wearied by. And he's trying, he's trying to conjure up this hope. He's trying to remember the attributes of his God, his Lord. And he says, you know, God is gracious. I know this about him. He is a gracious God, quick to forgive. But I can't seem to reconcile that with my current reality. Maybe he's forgotten to be gracious. Maybe He's overcome with anger now, and that's stopping his compassion. He says, honestly, I look at the atrocities around me, and I can't speak. I'm not exactly sure what time period uh, Asaph is specifically located in, but I would imagine it's probably either in the conquest of Israel by the Assyrians or the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians. In either case, you're talking about raping and pillaging and famine and disease. When Jeremiah talks about the pillaging of Jerusalem and the conquest of Judea by the Babylonians, he talks about mothers being so hungry that they boil their babies and eat them. You know, I, I have no concept of what that must feel like, because, you know, that's one of those things that sounds innately evil. It sounds like you're the worst mother in the world. You should just die. You shouldn't eat your baby. But I have no concept of that type of pain. So I'm not in a place to point fingers at those people. All I can say is that's a whole nother reality. That's a whole nother horror that I can't fathom. I assume this is the type of pain that Asaph is 
reflecting on. But looking at these first nine verses, there's a particular verse that leaps off the page because of my experience that infiltrates his words. And that's verse four. Asaph says, speaking to God, apparently, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So it's as if he wants to shut out reality, but God is saying, no, look, look, Asaph, look at these horrible things. And he's so troubled it leaves him speechless. Well, to me, that sounds like the main character of A Clockwork Orange, Alex. Now, in my case, I've read both the book and watched the famous Stanley Kubrick movie. If you're not familiar with it, it's an English book written in 1963, although I think it was still relatively obscure until Stanley Kubrick, the director of 2001 A Space Odyssey, later The Shining, Dr. Strangelove, Full Metal Jacket, one of the most famous directors of all time, decided, hey, I want to make this book into a movie, and he made it into quite the film. At the time, it was banned in many countries, considered ultra-violent. It includes scenes of rape, it includes scenes of harsh violence, and also very bleak, black humor amidst it all. It's, It's a tough film to sit through, but it has some value. Let me just briefly run you through the plot of it. So, it's set in some futuristic kind of dystopian environment, and the main character, Alex, is addicted to violence. He's 15, 16 years old, and he's got, you know, essentially a gang. He's the head of four or five friends, and they go around at night looking for people to destroy and bad things to do, violent things to do. The book is written from his perspective, and in the movie we hear him narrating as he's doing horrible things. But one of the opening scenes starts with the gang breaking into an upper-class rich couple's home and then raping a wife in front of the husband, and the wife later succumbs to wounds from the gang rape and dies. Harsh stuff. Eventually, Alex is caught by the government and sent to prison. And in prison, Alex is chosen because he seems to be taking an interest in the Bible, which Alex, being the narrator, tells us he's not really into the Bible. He's not coming into faith. He just likes a lot of the Bible stories because of their violence. Uh, which seems to be an interesting critique of the Bible itself. But some of the psychologists and people that are running the prison see his devotion to the Bible and think this is a good guy to conduct an experiment on. So Alex agrees to go under a certain therapy. And if he goes through this therapy that new psychologists have worked up, uh, he'll be let out of prison early. So he willingly is a participant on this. And they begin to give him what's called aversion therapy. Essentially, they're giving him nausea-inducing drugs while they force him to watch violent films. So the idea is you have horrible nausea and it's Pavlovianly associated with violence and sexuality. So the most memorable scene in the movie, and even if you haven't seen the movie, you're probably familiar with this image, is Alex, the main character, sitting in a movie theater and having his eyes forced open by a sort of mechanical contraption and there's a man sitting right next to him constantly squeezing out little eye droplets into his eyes so that his eyes don't you know dry up because he can't blink because this device is on his eyes forcing him to watch these films and he doesn't want to watch them but he can't look away it's a giant theater it's a hellish horrible scene this idea that you're forced to watch these things that are horrific animals being hurt people being sodomized horrible things Uh, but the aversion therapy works Afterwards, Alex has proven that he can't touch a naked woman. 
Uh, because every time he sees anything that has to deal with sexuality or violence, he vomits. He's horribly nauseous. Um, the therapy works. He's released into society. And quickly thereafter, both in the book and the movie, he's brutalized by former people he's harassed. 15-year-old Alex, before all this bad stuff happens, for whatever reason, had a certain love for classical music. Specifically, the work of Beethoven. And during the aversion therapy, while they were playing these movies, they also happened to be chiming in Beethoven music. So now, one true love of Alex's, classical music, is taken away from him in this afterlife, if you will. This post-aversion therapy, post-conditioned Pavlovian therapeutic system. Uh, he now can't enjoy the music that he once loved, that seemed innocent and pure to love. As the story goes, he ends up throwing himself out of the window one day when he hears Beethoven music, trying to get away from it. The book and movie both descend after that into a talk about bureaucracy and the optics of all these people that want to prove that aversion therapy works, trying to keep Alex out of the limelight because they don't want this getting out, that the aversion therapy has some pretty bad side effects like attempted suicide and blah, 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 blah. The rest isn't really important. But obviously, Psalm 77.4 brings that to light, right? Except instead of a machine holding Alex's eyes open, in this case, it's God. God, you're holding Asaph's eyes open to see all these miseries in the world. Uh, this is a horrible comparison because it's not fair. But sometimes I feel a certain similarity to that, especially in this age of the internet. Right? There's so many atrocities happening everywhere in the world. And currently I work at a local news station, and so I even get the local news, and I hear about the pederasts and the rapists and the murderers. And it's hard not to have that infiltrate your mind, infiltrate your soul. But the really interesting thing about A Clockwork Orange is maybe right there in its title. So, what does A Clockwork Orange mean? From what I understand, Anthony Burgess, the author, was trying to show an absurd contradiction. And that contradiction is making something organic act mechanically. And apparently that's the point of his novel. In an essay that was published in The New Yorker in 2012, but written back in the 70s by the author Anthony Burgess, he said that the novel's purpose was plainly this, and I quote, What I was trying to say was that it is better to be bad of one's own free will than to be good through scientific brainwashing. In other words, it's better for the orange to be bad or go sour on its own than for some machine to change the DNA of the orange itself, to make it a mechanical device. He goes on in his essay to bring this talk of government intrusion into our lives into theology. And I have to read it. It's a couple paragraphs here, but bear with me. I think this is really interesting. Burgess says, after talking about Calvinism and Calvinism's intrusion into England in the 1800s, he says this, It is not my aim to teach elementary theology here, and it is certainly not my intention to view the contemporary world from an angle of inherited faith. I am merely concerned with showing that certain terms we borrow from theology have validity in a secular approach to our problems. Being a person in whom religious faith has been shaky for 40 years, it would be hypocritical if I preach that, to stop war and regenerate the polluted rivers, we should get back to God. What I do suggest is that religion, and such secular or anthropocentric disciplines as philosophy, psychology, and sociology, have something in common, and that is an awareness of the abiding fact of man's unhappiness. And it would seem that certain words of ancient provenance, like good, 
evil, free will, even original sin, do not have to be superseded by pseudo-scientific terminology just because they happen to derive from a God-centered approach to man. He continues, We call the chessboard white, we call it black, says Bishop Blugham in Robert Browning's poem. In other words, an optimistic view of human life is as valid as a pessimistic one. But whose life do we mean? That of the entire race, or that of the inconspicuous fragment of it each of us calls myself. I think I am optimistic about man. I think his race will survive. I think, however slowly or painfully, he will solve his major problems just because he is aware of them. As for myself, all I can say is that I am growing old, my sight is blurring, my teeth always need attention, I cannot eat or drink as much as I once did. I am more and more frequently bored. I cannot remember names, my reason works slowly. I have spasms of envy of the young and of resentment at my own eminent decay. If I had a burning faith in personal survival, this gloom of sentience might be greatly mitigated. But I have lost this faith and am unlikely to recover it. Sometimes I have a desire for immediate annihilation. But the urge to remain alive always supervenes. There are consolations, love, literature, music, the colorful life of the southern city in which I spend much of my time. But these are fitful. There is a bigger and more abiding consolation. The fact that I am free to write what I wish, that I have to follow no clock, that I need call no man sir and defer to him through fear. Okay? What's he getting at here? Two things. Point one. Man is unhappy. Point two. There is consolation in freedom. In other words, you shouldn't make the orange work like a clock, because organisms find their beauty in their freedom. This is the answer to the problem of pain for many people, for many believers. And it could also be an answer to the question of why is God silent? I've heard this numerous times. God is silent either to test our faith, to provide us with free will, more on that in a second, or if you're a Calvinist, to prove our need for him or to prove his sovereignty over this world. The argument goes that there's a necessity to God's silence. If you're deterministic, the necessity is that he has to, you know, remove himself from the equation for a moment to show how absolutely fallen apart the world is apart from him, without him. But the other, more interesting answer, I think it comes from the free will sector, and I'm much more empathetic towards it, or sympathetic, I should say. And that's this idea that if God was like Old Faithful, the geyser that I want God to be instead of a spirit, then our free will would be limited. Essentially, if you had more knowledge, your free will, in a weird way, is limited. If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists and he continually performs all these miracles, if God was Santa Claus and every Christmas Eve he showed up on our rooftops, then there would be no need for faith, right? Because it's just like the sun rising and the sun setting. You don't have to push yourself to, to actively believe in it. You don't have to have what we call faith. You just know that the sun is going to rise because of conditioning. I would say that's my instinct. I am conditioned to believe the sun is going to rise every morning because that's what it's always done. Let's read the last half of Psalm 77. Asaph continues, starting in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. 
When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Asaph is finding consolation, or perhaps finding his faith renewed, and remembering God's miracles of old. God, you're silent now, but you showed up to save Israel way back when. You showed up and divided the Red Sea when the Israelites needed you, when the Egyptians were bearing down on them and were going to destroy every last man, woman, and child, unless something miraculous happened. You made that miracle happen. That's what I'm going to take heart in. Even though my eyes are held open by you and I see horrible things in front of me. Anthony Burgess is saying in A Clockwork Orange that although Alex is horrible by doing all these horrible things at the beginning of his book, what the government does, conditioning him through aversion therapy, is worse because it's taking away his free will. He's saying that the one good thing in all of us is the beauty of free will. And the government, by doing this aversion therapy, is depriving Alex of that one pure joy. Even though Alex is already 99% evil, that 1% of him that liked Beethoven was pure and innocent and good. And that was the only good he was ever given, and the government deprived him of that. In other words, determination is always worse than free will, even when free will shows all of its ugly sides. So then, if we go along with Mr. Burgess, and we go along with Asaph here in Psalm 77, you could say that God's silence helps maintain our free will, helps maintain what makes creation beautiful. But here's the problem with that. <laughs> Aren't we going to be conditioned no matter what? God isn't a geyser. He's not going off every 44 to 125 minutes. But you know what is going off consistently? The sun. The sun rising and setting, or I know it's the Earth's rotation around the sun. But naturalism. Since the scientific revolution now, we've had, what, 300, 400 years of naturalism sinking into our brain, sinking into our DNA through multi-generations of it being taught. Whereas God mayhaps might not be that geyser, we're getting the geyser in the form of the scientific revolution teaching us all these things and quote-unquote miracles that science, that nature provides for us. There is a God of naturalism, and he's very timely. He works like clockwork, and he produces. Look, we've used naturalism, we've used science to cure people of diseases, to, to heal people with leprosy, to, in one sense or another, turn water into wine. Doesn't that limit our free will? We're not in a vacuum anymore. We have all these influences. Aren't all these things pushing on our free will? Doesn't that limit our beauty anyway? It's hard not to feel that some of Asaph's words here in the second half of the psalm ring a little hollow when you're thinking, Asaph, man, that's been, what, 500, 600 years since the Exodus? And since then, you've just, for the most part, had a lot of bloodshed, had a lot of horrible things happen to Israel. We already did the episode on the judges. <laughs> And now we're going through another long-standing period of pain and agony when you talk about Israel being conquered and Judah being conquered and the Babylonians and the Assyrians who just did dreadful things to everyone they encountered. I know it's a certain aphorism 
a negative one at that to say, hey, God, what have you done for me lately? You know, it kind of sounds stuck up and like something a user would say. But it's hard not to say that when but it's hard not to say that when science and naturalism and all these other forces and influences are giving us our daily dose of whatever. When there's amazing things coming from other areas, it's hard not to be full of doubt. Furthermore, I come from this horrible disposition of being like, I don't even know if I can believe in dinosaurs. Because I never saw a dinosaur walking around until I stick my fingers in the dinosaur's side how do I know there actually were dinosaurs? There's bones in the ground, yeah, sure, but I never saw the dinosaurs walking around. I saw them in Jurassic Park, but I know Jurassic Park's not really real, so how do I believe in them? I know that's a silly thing to say, but still, sometimes I feel that. I feel like I have to have faith to believe in dinosaurs. I guess to a certain extent, I'm talking about nature versus nurture and all this, that, that the world nurtures us, right, towards certain preconditions, or not preconditions, conditions. The sun rises, the sun sets. The sun rises, the sun sets. There's a certain pattern to it, and our human DNA in us constantly extracts meaning from patterns. So we're seeing the sun rising and the sun setting, and we're coming to conclusions based on that. And those get ingrained in our brains. You know, it's like you hear stories about, like, the true Tarzan children, the jungle children that really were, like, raised in the wild. And if they're caught late enough, like, after eight years old or something like that, they can never learn language. Their brains become too hardwired, and they can't be acclimated to modern society. They're too animal-like, too wild-like. As I say this, I should do like a whole episode talking about the animal children, because that's a weird... The feral children thing is, is a weird study, but... <laughs> I don't know if I'm making any sense here. Why is God silent when there's so much that fills that vacuum of silence? If the answer is supposed to be because you need free will... Yeah, but it doesn't seem like the scale is even, right? If you're saying, well, you need free will, and if God did miracles every day at every Walmart in America, then, you know, you would have no free will because just like the sun setting and sun rising, you wouldn't need to have faith to believe in God. It would just be this thing that is. So there's not free will in that. I don't have the free will within me to choose that the sun doesn't rise and set. That's ingrained in me. It's conditioned within me. I can't unbelieve it. Yeah, but while God is being silent, all these other things are happening. All these other things are conditioning me. Why do I need to look back to Moses and Aaron? Or why do I need to look back 2,000 years to the cross? Holy Spirit, I, I, I do believe in you. I know good things are happening. But can you please be a geyser? Rather than just end the podcast right there, which I was really tempted to do, I do want to throw out a final counterpoint, a little ray of hope here. And I know I've mentioned this in past podcasts, so again, I apologize for the redundancy. But this is a web, right? And we, we interlace thoughts, and sometimes they cross over into each other, and we have to repeat to kind of find a new aspect of an old thought. Anywho, for me, there is a, a secondary answer to this, that I don't need to look back to Moses and Aaron. I don't need necessarily to go all the way back to... To Christ on the cross, though of course I enjoy and find supplication in remembering that. But I have my own Ebenezers. If you'll recall, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, when Joshua gets the Israelites to the promised land, he essentially just piles up a bunch of rocks and calls it an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is like a place of remembrance. And he says, this pile of rocks stands here so that we can remember this day. I have Ebenezers in my life. Things that to me, feel like God showed up. But they're very personal, and I could tell you them, but 
I don't think they're going to have any weight with you because you didn't experience them. It's like, a lot of times when I hear about miracles in other people's lives, like, I smile because that's cool. It's a cool story. But because, again, I'm not sticking my fingers in that dinosaur's side, it's hard to get myself all the way there. I I guess I believe it, but I don't internalize it because I don't feel it. But I feel my own Ebenezer's. I can see them in my hindsight, in my memory banks. I hope everyone has them, but I'm not always sure. Anywho, the end. This is Dante Stack. Peace be the journey.